0: I am grateful for my opportunity this morning to be behind this particular pulpit uh, for a couple reasons. Really, for five years now, um, what's gone on behind this pulpit has been good preaching, um, excellent preaching. And even before there was this pulpit, um, there was good preaching um, here in a Bible study. And so I'm glad just for my chance to be another part of that. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for my chance to preach because of you all. Um, you as a church already, I mean, your reputation, even from the early days of Bible study, your reputation has always been a group of people who love the word of God and love hearing it preached. And you continue in that. And so there's a unique joy in getting to preach to people who love the Bible and they love to hear preaching. And so I'm grateful for that. And really, most of all, I'm grateful for a chance to preach because of the sacredness of God's holy word. There is no word like the one you have in front of you. So it's a privilege for me to get to preach it. Our church is committed to expository preaching, where we preach verse by verse throughout God's word, and I'm personally committed to that as well. The reality is that in our church, the preacher's normal question is, what verse comes next before he preaches, right? What verse did I end with and what verse comes next? It's a little different for me when I just come on an occasion to get to preach, Um, Because we spend so much time in the New Testament, when I have these chances to preach, I'm often drawn to the Old Testament um, just because we we spend comparatively um, less time there. And the last time I preached from the Old Testament, I think I preached from the book of Jonah. And as I was praying and considering what to preach to you today, the Lord kept bringing me back to the sequel of Jonah. Jonah has a sequel. There There is a part two that comes from Jonah. Before we get to the book of Nahum, in fact, maybe I should tell you that we're going to be in the book of Nahum and let you start getting to flip there. I'm, I'm actually looking for a little response from you. I, I genuinely want you to respond with raising your hand. I know we don't often raise our hands, except for some of us maybe in, in worship. But um, how many of you, by show of hands, how many of you have ever heard a sermon from the book of Nahum? You've ever, in your whole life, all right, I see one. Hold them high. Don't be, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. Like, I want to know. All right, I see one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm seeing six hands. Oh, seven, eight, nine. The Lundy's just brought it up to nine, all right? I think we're up to nine people have heard a sermon from the book of Nahum. That is really surprising to me because nine is way more than what I was expecting to hear, all right? Uh, The book of Nahum is not one of those books that um, you frequently hear sermons from. It's, It's one of those books that you have probably interacted with, um, you've had to interact with on your own. It's come from your own personal study. Whatever you know this morning about the book of Nahum has come because you, you read it yourself, except for those nine, nine few who have heard a sermon from it. Um, and even in churches where um, they use like liturgical readings, where they read through the Bible, uh, the book of Nahum isn't even included in a lot of liturgical churches' reading, reading plan. All right? And I'm not going to ask how many of you have ever read the book of Nahum, But what I understand is the book of Nahum is a long way from January 1st. You know what I'm saying? You read through the Bible in a year, people. And don't tell me this isn't you, right? So you started out strong in Genesis and Exodus. You hit Leviticus, and eh, things started to go a little bit slower. And the book of Nahum is far away from January. So what what happens, unless it only happens to me, is you got a little bit behind, right? And as the year went on, you missed a couple days. And so pretty soon you're reading four chapters a day, eight chapters a day. And what happens is... Uh, you know, you hit maybe Psalms and Proverbs, and it's getting later in the year. You're getting further behind. And uh, all of a sudden, the New Testament is looking more and more enticing, right? And so now to catch up in the eight chapters I need to read to stay on my bowring plan, I'm just going to skip to the New Testament. And so by the time you hit Nahum, well, you, you don't hit Nahum, right? So um, I'm not going to ask if, if you've read it or how many times you've read it. But our challenge this morning is that we're coming really to an unfamiliar book. You haven't heard a lot of messages from it. Um, I have a unique challenge. I've never preached from it. And yet, this is a book that has God's message for us this morning. The book of Nahum does show up in the New Testament. And it shows up in a passage that gives us all the incentive we would ever need to care about this book of the Bible. It shows up in 2 Timothy 3.16. And it tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God. And it is all profitable For teaching and for correction and for reproof, for instruction and godliness, that the man of God will be thoroughly furnished, equipped for every single good work. There's the book of Nahum, because this is part of all scripture. And so, what I want to happen today is I want you to hear God's message from the book of Nahum. And yet, I also hope that in this study, you'll find yourself encouraged, because the reality is that you can read and apply your Old Testament. This is, this is not so far away from you that, that you can't grasp it. You can't apply it. that you, you, you can find that it will renew your mind. And I hope you'll be encouraged. If you have considered the book of Nahum only a little bit, if you have just spent the last five minutes of my introduction trying to find the book of Nahum, whatever your situation is with Nahum, you can learn from it, and it will change how you live because this is part of all Scripture. Okay, Today we're going to discover... This main point from Nahum chapter 1. Because God is a wrathful judge and a good deliverer, put your hope in Jesus Christ. Because God is a wrathful judge and a good deliverer, put your hope in Jesus Christ. Let's all pray again. Heavenly Father, we have come to your holy word. And it is your word that shapes us. It changes us. It teaches us how to think about you and how to think about ourselves and how to think about our wor- world. I pray that you would help us as we come to a book that maybe we aren't super familiar with, that we haven't read a lot or, or meditated a lot on. I pray for your people this morning as they encounter your truth in this passage, that you would use it to change our lives. Please, would you help me as I preach that I would be aware and dependent on the Holy Spirit. Help us to see the reality that Jesus is someone to put our hope in. And I pray in his name, amen. Nahum, chapter number one, it starts out like this, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And already we're going, this is why I don't spend a lot of time in Nahum. Um, What is an oracle? Why do I care about Nineveh? what is this vision, who's Nahum, where's Elkosh, immediately we're confronted in just the introduction with a bunch of things that we're not super familiar with. So the, the reality is that we're going to have to back up a little bit and do a little background work before we can get to the significance of this passage. All right? and, and what I hope you'll see is that in this background, we're not just talking history, we're not just talking boring facts. What, what you hear will actually inform how we interpret and how we understand the book of Nahum. And these are all things that are totally available for you to do in your own Bible study. Right, Uh, my enjoyment of preaching from the Old Testament is not because I'm some type of of Old Testament expert. I I only do it because I think we we need it. Right, but this isn't some kind of secret knowledge or anything else. You can do what we're about to do as we look into the background um, with a good study Bible, for instance. So a lot of you have John MacArthur's study Bible. I also really like the ESV study Bible. Those are great resources that at the beginning of every book, they'll have an introduction, they'll walk you through when did this happen, why did it happen, what's going on, that will help you when you get to the book. So we're going we're to do some of that background ourselves. All right. It says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The interesting thing about the book of Nahum is that is that it appears to have been actually written as a book, as a prophecy. When it says the oracle, that's kind of what it's saying. Most of what we read in our minor prophets, we call them minor not because they don't matter, but because they're not very big. But um, in our minor prophets, you normally have verbal messages that got written down. All right? What this is, is a written down message. So it's a little, it's unique um, from, from the other minor prophets. So it appears to have been written as a book, not a verbal message. It comes to us somewhere around the seventh seventh century B.C. All right, probably somewhere right around 640 B.C. Why is that important? Well, um, a couple a couple reasons. It situates us in biblical history and in and in redemptive history. We know from uh, Nahum 3:8 that the fall of Thebes had already happened, and history tells us that happened in 663 B.C. The book of Nahum is about the Assyrian Empire, particularly its capital, Nineveh, and that was destroyed in 612 B.C., so we know this book had to happen somewhere between 663 and 612, so somewhere in the middle. Jonah was written about 100 years ago, right? and so that helps us because when you hear Nineveh, you probably thought about Jonah. You need to know it's been about 100 years since Jonah came, preached his message, and the city of Nineveh repented. A century has gone by there's new kings there's new leadership there's whole new generations of people all right i I don't know why it is maybe it's just the order that our bibles come come in maybe I didn't have a very I haven't had a very good grasp of chronology, but I have always tended to think that these minor prophets were way removed from the first half of, of our Old Testaments, right? They're, they're like, in my mind, they used to be in this whole like separate category. What we're talking about, if we're in kind of the 640 range, um, we're talking about 2 Kings 23 during the reign of King Josiah, all right? They're, they're contemporaries that overlap. Um, I think it's a it's a challenge for us, but remember that your minor prophets, even though they're Later in the Old Testament, they happen during Kings and Chronicles. So if you're reading Kings and Chronicles, you're reading the same time period as most of your minor prophets. There are some that were written after the exile, but really only three. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the only ones that happen after Israel and Judah are in exile. Okay, So this is contemporary with stuff that you read in Kings and in Chronicles. What had happened is that the Assyrians had been attacking and taking tribute and enslaving Israel and Judah ever since the ninth century right, ever since the 800s BC. Now we're somewhere around 640. Um, Assyria had already destroyed the 10 northern tribes of Israel. 722 is the big date there when Israel, as as its own nation, was destroyed, taken off into captivity. Judah has remained, all right? Judah was slower with her idolatry and apostasy, and so remained as a nation longer than Israel. At this point, if we're right in the 640 range, then the kingdom of Assyria is at the height of its power. All right? The Assyrian Empire was one of the dominant empires um, in ancient history. It ruled literally for centuries, unchallenged. It ruled over all the lands. Assyria had destroyed almost 50 cities of Judah. And when the Assyrians conquered a city, it was an ugly, messy business. There are still carvings that, that we can see today that show the after effects of battles where you have men impaled on stakes and bodies that are dismembered. You have Assyrian kings like Ashurbanipal, who was known to tear out the tongues of those who speak against his god, use their idols to club them to death, and then feed their bodies to dogs and pigs and vultures and fish. This was a violent, hateful, dominant society. The Assyrians had a military strategy, which was to conquer a city, and then you either kill everybody who's in it, or you deport them all to a whole different city. You transplant whole cities. And by doing that, they would control the whole system. The Syrians were masters at controlling the lands that they conquered. So, what happened? Well, one historian writes that from the height of its power and prestige, the country seems to have fallen with appalling suddenness into obscurity. In fact, it's considered one of the great riddles of world history, how the dominant empire collapsed and collapsed Almost instantly, it was a sudden collapse. How, how could that happen? Well, if you're a biblical student, you know why. Even this place called Nineveh, what was so special about it? Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It bordered what's close to Mosul, Iraq today. It was really one of the grandest, most powerful cities in the whole earth. Right? This was a colossal city. It was surrounded by at least two walls, the inner one, um, they say it was about 100 feet tall, was the inner wall. It was the tallest wall. So you have this giant wall. Um, for some reason, people that write history, and, and everywhere I read said the same thing. They, they said it was always wide enough for three chariots to race side by side. And, and everything I read said that, that they raced side by side. I don't know why they couldn't just drive politely. Why is it always that they had to race side by side? I don't know. But apparently... Uh, from some ancient source, they said that three chariots would race side by side, so that's what everybody quotes. And uh, so this is a wide wall that's giant. And then there's a second wall. In front of that second wall, there's a moat. And that moat was 150 feet wide. And that moat was 60 feet deep. You have this giant city that lasted and lasted and lasted, and they thought no one will ever conquer us, no one can. The, As- the Assyrians, they're the greatest empire, and they have this jewel of a city that is totally untouchable. So they think. And yet what Nahum writes at the height of Assyrian power, when they thought they were untouchable, Nahum writes, God is going to judge you. And God is going to destroy you. In fact, Nahum writes things that, that frankly, if, if we understood the history, if you understood what was going on, we would say it's laughable what Nahum wrote. Nahum wrote that Nineveh is going to be overthrown in a moment. At the time, Nineveh is the crown jewel city of the dominant empire. And, and Nahum says it's all coming down, and it's coming down fast. God was going to promise to destroy the Ninevites because of their sin. And in this, we find our message. And so that's why the history matters, because you've got a prophecy to a kingdom that thinks that they, they have no worries, they have no fears, they've never been more powerful. And yet God has a message for them, and his message is one of judgment. So we're back to our main point. Because God is a wrathful judge and a good deliverer, you need to put your hope in Jesus Christ. We're going to look at Nahum's words, and we're going to see both those realities. God is a wrathful judge, and God is a good deliverer. Let's look at verse number two. Nahum's going to start us off by saying, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And that verse alone might be one reason that you don't hear this read constantly in churches and you haven't heard tons of sermons. Because that's a description of the Lord that many might find a little uncomfortable. We might get a little squeamish. This is Nahum's introduction to the character of God. What Nahum's going to do from verse 2 all the way down to 8, he's going to present to us who God is. He wants us to know who God is before he gets to the application to the Ninevites. And so these first verses 2 through 8, he's not even going to talk about Nineveh. He's just going to talk about who God is. So Nahum is going to ground his message in who God is. And he says, the Lord is a jealous and an avenging God. That word jealous is a word that's used only of God in the Old Testament. Primarily, it's from his revelation at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, verse Verse number five, as God was giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, he said, You shall not bow down to idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And he repeats that in chapter 34 of Exodus. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Nahum's pointing us to the character of God, and it's something we need to hear today. If we're going to know our own God, the Lord is deeply, fiercely, protectively devoted to his people. The Lord is a jealous God. Not jealous in any kind of sinful sense, but in that Deep, abiding, fierce protectiveness. God loves his people, and God will keep all of his promises to his people. And yet he will avenge his enemies. Why does that matter? Because Nahum has written at a time when God's people have been oppressed. Israel has been taken into slavery by these very Assyrians. Judah has been attacked by them. And God cares about it because God is a jealous God. He cares for his people. So it says he's jealous and he is avenging. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, keeps wrath for his enemies. Why does he keep repeating that? That's just the nature of Hebrew poetry. He's just saying the same thing on every line. All right? Hebrew poetry is not based on rhyme like a lot of, a lot of our poetry is. It's, it's based on comparison of the lines with the ideas in them. And notice he just, he's stacking up all these descriptions to say the same thing. God is a wrathful judge. All right? Because he's jealous and avenging. He's avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance. He keeps wrath. All these things are things that are true about our God. And God's wrath comes into play whenever man breaks his relationship with God. So Nahum wants us to know who God is, and he wants us to know that God is a wrathful judge. Yet verse 3, he follows that up with, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. This is something that is true about God. Yes, God is wrathful, but God is not quick to wrath. God is God who is slow to anger. And this too, I think, is a reflection from God's revelation at Mount Sinai when God came to Moses in Exodus 34. This is exactly what God said, right? Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, I will proclaim my name. And this is what he said. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is what is true about God. God is slow to anger, but that doesn't mean he is passive or uncaring about sin. And this is where I think maybe we get ourselves in trouble because what we like to do is to think about the slow to anger part. That's the part that feels good to us because we know we need God to be patient with us, right? And our world ought to know that we want a God who isn't quick-tempered. And we like to think about the graciousness and the loving kindness, but there's this aspect of the character of God that so many so many times rubs against what we think maybe God even ought to look like. And it's this wrathful side that we say maybe we don't really want to highlight that part. Let's not spend too much time in Nahum because he flat out of the gate, right out of the gate, said God is wrathful and avenging. Let's kind of minimize that part of God and let's maximize His graciousness. And yet. Nahum says we need to consider our God as he really is, because he is slow to anger. But that doesn't mean that he's passive or uncaring about sin. And our New Testament would echo that same thing. Romans chapter number 2, consider verses 3 to 5. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is a slow-to-anger kind of God. He has patience. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't care or will not judge sin. And yet, the people of Judah were going, the Assyrian Empire has ruled unchallenged. They've conquered Israel. They keep attacking us. And I don't see anything happening to them. What is the deal, God? This is the answer. What is the deal that the Assyrians have been prospering for all this time? The deal is, God is slow to anger. He deals out his judgment on his own timetable. God gives time to repent, and for that we should all be grateful. This this same understanding of God also informed Jonah a hundred years earlier, right? I mean, Jonah knew this exact same thing about God, only it made Jonah angry. Jonah chapter 4, God does what God will do. He gives people time to repent, and when they repent, he graciously agrees to not Punish them, and what happened to Jonah? It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Right? You remember this? It's only been like two years since I preached Jonah, right? So um, it displeased Jonah. He was mad, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, "Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish." Why did Jonah run away? Right? You know this, right? Why did Jonah refuse to go to Nineveh? It's because he knew the character of God. He knew exactly what God was going to do, and it made him mad. God, I knew you were going to forgive those people. Because he says, this is why I fled, because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is God as he really is. And yet, let's, let's not forget that God's slowness to anger doesn't mean he doesn't get angry, Right? That's where we fall off the wagon on the other side. He's slow to anger, but he is a wrathful judge. Just because God is slow to punish sin doesn't mean he doesn't punish sin. It means he does it on his own time frame. And Nahum is going to remind us about that because he says the Lord is slow to anger and he is great in power and will by no means clear the guilty. Look, Nahum wants you to know too, God is slow to anger, but he will not clear the guilty. God isn't someone who just winks at sin and passes over it without dealing with it. God deals with every sin that has ever been committed. So let's, let's, not, let's not forget in our love of his grace and in our appreciation of his kindness, let's not forget that God, God does get to the anger and he does get to the wrath. And that's what Nahum wants us to know. He's de- going to describe God in these poetic terms. He's going to talk about God's power. Look in verse 3. He's poetically describing God's power and his greatness. He says, his way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Right? If you've ever been in a storm, a really powerful storm, one that shook you to your core, then you, you, know, what it, you know fear in a, in a unique way. If you've ever been in the middle of a lightning storm, and, and you were unprotected for some reason, maybe you were out in it, you know what it is to be afraid of the storm. God's way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds, they're just like the dust off his feet. All right? Our feet make little dust clouds and they disappear. God's, the dust that comes off God's feet, they're like the clouds in the sky. He's just using poetic language to say God is powerful. Verse 4, God rebukes the sea and he makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. What could that possibly be an allusion to? I think he's going back to Exodus again. Right? Nahum is just re- remembering that God is the one who can rebuke the Red Sea and make it dry ground. He's the one that, when the Israelites came to cross the Jordan, could make the Jordan dry ground. He, he even stopped the river, so the sea and the rivers. He says, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. You say, I don't even know what these places are. <laughs> all right, here we go back again to, you have all of the resources you need to figure out what these places are and, and why it matters. What is Nahum talking about? Well, Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon, those were all considered the most fertile, the the best growing areas. Lebanon, known for its trees. Bashan and Carmel, they were places with huge, fertile grasslands. And, And Nahum says that in front of God, those things would just wither. Verse number five says, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. This could just be more, Description of how powerful, a poetic description of how powerful God is. But I think this, this could also be an echo of Mount Sinai, right? When God came to Mount Sinai to give the law to Moses, this is the description. The mountain is quaking, it's rocking, it's shaking, there's lightning, there's, and the people are scared to death, all right? When God comes, then the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Naam says in verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is it's poured out like fire. That word poured out has a idea of like molten lava or molten liquid. It's poured out. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The, these great big rocks that, that to man you could never do anything with. To God, he can easily break them. Naam's trying to say God is powerful. That's the point. God is powerful, and what that does is it ups the fear factor when you say God is a wrathful judge, because we're not talking about somebody who's limited in power. We're, we're not talking about somebody who, who can't do anything to you. We're talking about the God of the universe that, that the whole earth would flatten in front of. One writer said it this way, when God comes to punish the guilty, it is a world-convulsing Mountain-shattering, sea-emptying, tornado of judgment that nothing can withstand. This is the reality of the God we worship. And yet, notice, every time Nahum says God is wrathful and God is judging, which is one of the main points we have to consider, God is a wrathful judge, he also points out that God is a good deliverer. Right? Because look at verse number 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those those who take refuge in him. See how Nahum puts those two things together? Nahum isn't bothered by writing six verses about God, the wrathful judge, and then saying the Lord is good. He's talking about the same God, right? The God that you worship, the God that we worship, he is a God of wrath, he is a wrathful judge, and he is a good deliverer. He's both those things at the same time. From, from the beginning of Genesis, from Genesis 1, we find out that God is and God does good, right? After each day of creation, the Lord sees what he's done, and it's, it's good, right? Only a good God can do good things. The psalmist in Psalm 16.1 said, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. In Psalm four eight. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Nahum wants you to get these two points together. God is a wrathful judge and God is a good deliverer. He's a stronghold. There's a military term. He, he, he is a fortress that you can run into and he will keep you safe because of his goodness. And God knows those who take refuge in him. God is not unclear about who his enemies are and who are those who trust in him. He knows you this morning. If you have taken refuge in him, God knows you. God knew his people, his covenant people in Israel and in Judah. He knew them. That is a consoling, it's a comforting, it is a hopeful thing. Because God is good. And yet as soon as he finishes verse number 7 saying the Lord is good, he knows those who take refuge in him. What does he say in verse number 8? But... But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. God is a wrathful judge, and Nahum wants you to know it. God is good. He's a good deliverer, and yet he's a wrathful judge. And and Nahum is going to take those two realities, and he's going to come back to them, only he's going to make specific application to the Assyrians and to those in Judah. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of the chapter. Okay, look at, look at verse number 9. He's going to move his attention from God generally. I'm just going to describe who God is, and he's going to apply it for us. Verse number 9. What do you plot against the Lord? Now he's speaking specifically to the Ninevites. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. That's all a description. Those are all words pointed at Nineveh. Right? They, they plot against the Lord. And, and he says, God's going to make a complete end of you. Trouble will not rise up a second time. In other words, you're not getting a second. There's no do-over after this judgment. Again, that's written to the Ninevites when they are completely safe, completely sh- secure. They're the world power. And Nahum says he's going to make an end of you so that you don't come back again. And that is exactly what happens. When, when, when God promises the Ninevites he's going to completely bring an end to them and with overflowing flood, what we find out from history is that is entirely what happened to the city of Nineveh. What happened to the city of Nineveh is a marvel if you just look at it from a worldly perspective. Because the city of Nineveh fell after an extremely temporary siege, when you consider the length of sieges that normally happened in those days. They're not sure whether it was a a military plan um, or if it was simply a flood, but literally, when it says overflowed with judgment, the walls of Nineveh actually crumbled from water flooding them. Interestingly, it seems like uh, they even flooded right where the palace of Sennacherib was, um, Adrian and I had a good time, as, as he and I were talking about this passage, um, looking at, he even sent me a map that showed where the river was that flooded and, and where it hit on the city. And all of that is part of God's divine plan and his divine judgment. The city was plundered to almost nothing of value. When it was excavated, There's hardly anything there. In fact, the city itself disappeared from history. It, it wasn't found until 1842. It, it just disappeared from this. At this point, the city was wiped out. Never again to be rebuilt, not even to be found until literally thousands of years later. When God says he's going to bring a complete end, that's exactly what he did. So he says, why do you plot against the Lord? He's going to make a complete end. When it says they're like entangled thorns, drunkards as they drink, like stubble fully dried, what he's saying is the city is going to be useless and helpless. Right? It's like a bunch of thorns that are all wrapped up together. That it's, no, it's no good for anything. You just pick up the whole lot and, and get rid of it. Like a drunkard as they drink. It's a description of somebody who's, they're useless and and they're helpless. A drunkard can't defend himself. He doesn't have the wherewithal, the senses. That's going to be Nineveh. Consumed like stubble fully dried. And the reason is because from Nineveh came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. And no one can lift their hand against God and survive. You cannot raise your hand against God in opposition and discover that you are stronger. God is always going to win the day. Now in verse 12, Nahum's going to switch, and he's going to switch with like no warning to now talking about those who need to be delivered. That's one of the challenges of the book of Nahum is that he doesn't, he doesn't say, now I'm talking to the Assyrians, now I'm talking to the Israelites, oh back to the Assyrians. You have to kind of figure it out yourself. Uh, If you're using an NIV, the NIV helps you by putting in brackets who he's, who he's addressing. But notice it's, it's, It is obvious who he's talking to. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, who are we talking about? It's the Assyrians, they're at full strength, they're many. They will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, who's he talking about? He's talking about Israel and Judah who got afflicted for their sins. Though I afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke, the Assyrian yoke, from off you and will burst your bonds apart. This is God being a deliverer. Do you see all that imagery of rescue, chains that are broken? God says, listen, Judah, you're not going to have the Assyrian Empire breathing down your neck and taking all your money and and kidnapping your children. I'm going to break those bonds apart. God is deliverer. God comes in as the avenger for his own people's sake. And he says, I'm going to rescue you, Israel. I'm going to rescue you, Judah, because even though they're at full strength, I'm going to come in, I'm going to tear off those bonds. God is a good deliverer. You see how Nahum's doing the same thing? He said, God is a judge and God is a deliverer. And so now we're getting practical. Assyria, you're going to get judged because God's a judge. But Judah, God's a deliverer, you're going to get delivered. You see, he's just bringing the practical application of what he already said about God. Now, verse number 14, we're going to flip back to the Assyrians. That's what I say, he just keeps bouncing back and forth. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Interesting thing, archaeologists, when they finally did uncover Nineveh, they had temples everywhere. Um, It was common back then. Um, there would have been temples everywhere, but they would have gods that, that they shaped like men. The interesting thing about the Ninevites, they had gods for any number of things, but they would even they would make idols that looked like people. They would even dress their idols in fancy clothes, they would even bring food to their idols three times a day. All right? These people were devoted to their idols. And there was a temple called the Temple of Nabu that had been in Nineveh for almost 15 centuries. And it was discovered burned and huge layers of ash everywhere. And at the bottom of the ash, they found a statue. And the statue was laying prostrate and it was headless. And I just think that's a, that is the archaeological um, answer when, when you say, What does it mean when God says, I will, from the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image? That's what's happening. Right? When you have a God who's laying face down with its head chopped off, that's God doing exactly what he said he was going to do. All right? What happens is that the invader is going to be invaded and the destroyer is going to be destroyed because God is against them. No power on earth can survive when it sets itself against the God of heaven. Why? Because God is a wrathful judge. And yet God is also a good deliverer because this... Judgment actually brings peace. It brings shalom. Look with me at verse number 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Does that seem strange to you? We've just read about all of this judgment, all of this wrath, all, all of this destruction, complete annihilation. How in the world Is this a message that could be categorized as good news or as peace? Because you have to remember that that Israel and Judah had been oppressed by the Assyrians. They they were under that iron boot. And now finally God says, I'm going to deal with it. And the good news is you're going to be free. You're going to be free from this oppressor. God's judgment is is intrically connected To his good news of deliverance. You see, God couldn't deliver the Israelites without judging first the Assyrians. And already, I hope in your mind, I hope your mind is already fast forwarding ahead in application for yourself. In recognition that when we say God judges and that judgment brings peace, that's exactly how he operates in our lives as well. The word, the, the name Nahum itself, it means comfort what his name means. And yet there's this whole entire book full of battle and and destruction. How could that bring comfort? Because God's judgment is always a comforting good news because God always brings peace from his judgment. It's Isaiah. Isaiah 52 also quotes this. Isaiah and Nahum are the only ones who say, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And Paul picks up that same thing in Romans, Romans chapter 10, when he says, how will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And we love the thing of good news. Like we love hearing good news. But but listen, beloved, there is no good news apart from the message of judgment. Do, Do you understand that? They have to go together. When the sky darkened over Calvary, our peace was coming because wrath was being poured out. The only reason we are at peace with God is because justice has been served. You see, these two things that are true about God, God is a wrathful judge and God is a good deliverer, they're entirely true for you as well. Because God judged his son, you can be delivered from your sins. You see, the gospel is in Nahum. And we can't read Nahum if we're going to be Christian readers of our Bibles without remembering that Nahum points us to Jesus. Because Nahum tells us something about God. God is angry against sin. God has wrath against sin. And and that's us. We're sinners. We rightfully fit under the condemnation of God. And yet God is a good deliverer and he's provided that deliverance through his son. One commentator wrote that God's good news, not the Assyrian Empire or any other, will be what stands the test of time. Now, it's possible that all this, all this talk of a wrathful God sounds odd to you, or at least uncomfortable. And if it doesn't, I think you're, you might be in the minority. Why, why is it that the talk and the thought of a wrathful God is something that we find uncomfortable or that makes us squeamish? I'll give you a couple reasons. First of all, I think it's possible that we're unfamiliar with our Old Testaments slash God. We're unfamiliar with who our God really is. Because Nahum isn't describing a different God than the God you know. He's not describing a different Lord. This is our Lord. And if we're unfamiliar with the message of Nahum and other places in the Old Testament, then really we're unfamiliar with our God. A second reason could be that we generally live in a very positive culture. We like to look on the bright side of things. We like it when our, I was going to say false teachers, but we like it when our prosperity teachers tell us that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the message we want to hear, all right? That's why there's however many tens of thousands at a certain church in Texas, and there's, you know, 200 of us here, right? It's more popular to, to hear that, you know, everything's going to be fine, and God wants you to be rich and happy and, it's not so popular to read God is a wrathful, avenging God. The message just isn't as appealing. It's not as palatable to our culture, not even to our, our Christian or evangelical culture. I think another reason it might be, sound awkward to us to think about the wrath of God is generally we have a slowness to think and to speak about hell. We like to say the Old Testament, that's the thing that talks about God's wrath. And when we get to the New Testament and it talks about the most devastating, horrifying description of the wrath of God and his punishment in hell, we put that on the back burner. We, we, don't, we don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about that. We're talking about that. But really, the, the last reason that it could be that we think little of a wrathful God, I'm concerned, is that it reflects the shallow thinking of the cross. We actually haven't thought about the cross deeply enough if we don't think about our God as a wrathful God. Because this is exactly what was happening at Calvary. God was pouring out wrath. He was treating his own son like an enemy. He was vengefully judging him. And that's why our understanding of this particular passage in Nahum needs to be that because God is a wrathful judge and a good deliverer, you should put your hope in Jesus because Jesus took this wrath for you. He, He stood in your place. He stood in my place. And the wrath that I should have gotten gotten? The wrath that I deserved, Jesus got. He took it for me. So put your hope in Jesus because it is true that God is a wrathful judge. And yet it is also true that he is a good deliverer. He is a good deliverer in the person of his son. How can we be saved from the wrath of God? The answer is Jesus. He bore God's wrath for you. The answer is not that God doesn't have wrath. The answer is that God took care of it for you. Think about John 3.36, the same passage we love here in God so loved the world, right? What about John 3.36? It just gets like left behind. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. How How does it end? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's wrath is not an Old Testament concept, right? This is the same God. Believe in him and you'll have life. Don't believe in him and you'll have wrath right now. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, verse number 7, that the Lord will return with mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But guess what? Conversely, those who do know God and who do obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they're free from that kind of judgment. They're free from that kind of wrath. Because of places like Romans 5, 6 that tell us that while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, much more will be saved by him from the wrath of God. God gave you his love by rescuing you from his wrath. There is no good news without this news of wrath. We don't When we talk about the gospel, it's not any good unless you realize how bad the news is that we rightfully deserve. Ephesians tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins that we once walked. We followed the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. We all lived in the passion of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and were by nature what? By nature, we were children of wrath. That's who we were pre-Christ. We were children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind, Paul says in Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. You see, God is a wrathful judge, and he is a good deliverer. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I appeal to you, if you are not in Christ, if you have not put your hope in Jesus to save you, to rescue you, not just from your sins, but from a wrathful God, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to say, I will trust that Jesus will spare me from from the rightful anger of God because I'm a sinner. And a holy God cannot look at sin. And a holy God will always deal with sin. And so we need a good deliverer, and that good deliverer is Jesus. And and his invitation to you is not work harder. It's not try to improve yourself and be a better person. The message of the good news is believe. Put your trust in Jesus, and he will be your good deliverer. God is a wrathful judge, and yet he is a good deliverer. I've tried to leave just a little bit of time left for a little bit of some extended application, just some practical takeaways from this message. What should we do? What should we do with this message? Can I just give you a couple suggestions as we think about what to do? And the reason I want to do this maybe for a little more extended time than what we normally do is I think one of our struggles with the Old Testament is we, we have a hard time getting it to today, right? We read Nahum and we go, that was a really long time ago. That was really far away. How, how, how can I get to here? I want to help you see how you can get the message that God is a wrathful judge and he's a good deliverer, how you can get it to right now. One of them I've already said, you could believe the gospel. That's a way to get the message of Nahum to today. All right? here, here are some others. Nahum should help us leave vengeance to God. All right? Nahum helps us leave vengeance to God. Because Paul reminds us in Romans, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So on a personal level, let's, let's get personal. Those times when you have felt tempted to personally take vengeance, right? you have been hurt. Maybe you've been sinned against. Maybe it has been in, in a drastic, life-changing way that you've been hurt. And what, what happens inside of you is what you cry out for vengeance and you want to take it yourself. What Nahum teaches us is that God is the avenger. He can do it better, more righteously, and more thoroughly than you ever could. So leave your personal vengeance to God. Doesn't matter if you've been hurt personally in your finances by somebody. Do- doesn't matter if that's an emotional pain. <laughs> Whatever it is that you ha- someone has done something to you and inside you go, I want vengeance, you can leave that to God. Because God will take vengeance. We can, we can even let God take vengeance in a general way, not just in a personal way, but for this world. There's some new data that came out um, from China's health ministry on March 18th uh, of this year, and it revealed that ever since 1971, over 330 million abortions have happened in their country. Since 1971, 330 million babies killed. That's about 1,500 every hour. What do do we say to that? What What does that do when the news, the staggering weight of those numbers, what does that do to our hearts? What it does and what Nahum helps us do is say, there is a God who will set that right. There is a God who will judge. And there is a God who will deliver. He will do both. We don't even have to look at China to grieve something like the murder of the unborn. This year marked the 40th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And it's estimated that 50 million babies in our own country have been killed since Roe versus Wade. We live in a country and we live in a world where, where justice is thrown to the wind, it seems. Where, where sin is rampant. I don't know if you've followed some of the, some of the news about the tragic Kermit Gosnell case that's happening right now in Philadelphia the mainstream media has basically left left it totally alone and yet it's beginning to come out more and more about an abortion doctor who's been who is on trial right now seven different accounts of murder one for a woman several the rest the other six for babies born alive and then he killed what do you, what do you say about just, I can't even, I'm not even going to tell you some of the details of that case, so I've read some, and it just makes me sick to my stomach. What do we say about that? What we say is there is a God who will judge. I don't have any idea what the right vengeance is for all of that kind of stuff, and I don't have the power to do it, but God does. So Nahum's message that God is a wrathful judge, it affects how you look at the news. According to the murder rate statistics, in the 20th century alone, there was 177 million documented murders. 177 million! Nazis alone counted for 16 million. The Armenian Genocide took 4 million. About 131 million people died in wars. 66 million alone in World War II. What, what do we say about that kind of that level of evil and atrocity in our world? Look, if you have any moral compass whatsoever, you have to go, we need justice. We need vengeance. And there is one who will bring vengeance. I mean, we could just hide from these things and act like they're not happening, but the reality is they are, and the reality is there is a God who knows, and that God is a wrathful judge. So Nahum should help us leave vengeance to our God. Nahum should also deepen our praise in the gospel because the reality is that all of us deserve the same kind of judgment and wrath that all of those murderers and Kermit deserves himself. Right? Because we have sinned against the holy God. Do you think about the wrath you deserve, but the deliverance that you got? Paul said to the Thessalonians that that the report was that that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We should be motivated to praise our great God for his good gospel when we consider that he's a wrathful judge but a good deliverer. So Nahum can deepen your praise in the gospel. Nahum can teach us how to pray differently. This is the character of God. God is a judge and a deliverer. So are you praying for both? Are you praying that that God will bring his vengeance, that God will end the sin and the sickness and the suffering of our world by bringing his final judgment? Are you praying that he will bring deliverance? Nahum can teach you how to pray in a different way. And lastly, Nahum can teach us to trust. Because Jesus is a safe stronghold from, from God's wrath. God is reliable in times of trouble. And there's a, there are those of you in this room who are suffering saints, and you can read a verse like, like verse number seven, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and you can say your amen to that. You can even help the rest of us, and you can say, this is true. God has been my stronghold. Nahum can inspire us to trust. Beloved, our God is not a God to be embarrassed about. He's a God to be understood. And then he should be feared and worshipped as he really is, which is as he revealed himself to be. And this is what Nahum says to us this morning. God is a wrathful judge, and God is a good deliverer. So put your hope in Jesus.